Support for this episode comes from the University of San Francisco's SWIG program in Jewish Studies and Social Justice, better known as JSSJ. The JSSJ Graduate Level Certificate Program in JEDI, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, gives professionals the opportunity to bring invaluable skills, tools, and resources organizations need to bridge the generational gap and ensure inclusive growth. JEDI plus JSSJ is more than an educational program. It's a call to action to improve the future of every Jewish institution. Join the growing list of organizations committed to JEDI education and values as a profound pathway to a more just and inclusive world. Apply by August 1st and get in on fall classes beginning soon. Just head to usfca.edu slash jedi. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 387, Conversion to Judaism, Beyond Blood Quantum. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And this is the second episode in our series of episodes exploring conversion to Judaism. Actually, you could kind of think of it as our third episode because a couple of months ago, we did an episode with Miriam Turlenchamp about the class that she and I are teaching that is an intro to Judaism class that is oriented towards conversion to Judaism, although anybody is able to be part of that class and lots of people are part of that class that are not necessarily in the process of converting to Judaism. We call that Judaism inbound. So we consider that episode part of this series, but in any event, last week we did our first official episode with our own colleague, Katie Kaysner-Frenchman, and this week we are excited to bring back a returning guest who actually is one of the guests, no offense to any of our other guests, but probably his interview is the one that I refer people to most often when they're asking, like, what's Judaism Unbound all about? What kind of conversations do you have? And I say, you really got to listen to this episode with our guest today, Juan Mejia, and you will really get a sense of what Judaism Unbound is all about and what we're exploring, and then you can listen to all the other episodes. So as I just mentioned, our guest today is Juan Mejia. He originally appeared on Judaism Unbound episode 57, which we called Becoming Jewish on the Web. And the basic story that Juan told us in that conversation is about how he grew up Catholic in Colombia and ultimately discovered that he had Jewish ancestry, which he wanted to explore in Colombia, but had a hard time finding any books about Judaism there. So he ended up going to Israel to study Judaism and ultimately became a rabbi, a conservative rabbi. And part of his motivation in becoming a rabbi and what he ultimately did after he graduated from rabbinical school is share Judaism in Spanish with other people like him in Latin America who might have discovered that they had Jewish ancestry. Subsequently, it's been discovered through DNA testing that a tremendous number, a tremendous proportion of Catholics in Latin America have Jewish ancestry, and that probably traces to the Spanish Inquisition. And Juan Mejia wanted to give access to Judaism to those folks that he didn't have himself when he was on his own exploration. So he started to create Spanish language videos on YouTube teaching about Judaism. And originally, the intent was for other folks who have Jewish ancestry to be able to watch them and decide for themselves whether they wanted to embrace their Jewish identities and perhaps formally convert to Judaism. And one was doing conversions and even mass conversions for folks like that. And then the most amazing part is that people started to contact him that said, I don't have Jewish ancestry or I don't know that I have Jewish ancestry, but I found your Spanish language videos about Judaism and I'm fascinated by Judaism. I'm in love with Judaism. I want to convert to Judaism. And one eventually said, well, I didn't do it for that reason, but why, why should I say no to these folks and started to also oversee their conversions? 
So we don't want to revisit that whole conversation that we had back in episode 57. So if you want to get a deep dive into what I just said and and other parts of that conversation, you can pause the audio right here, go to episode 57, listen to that episode, and then come back here for the follow-up six years later or so. And I'm pretty sure that you will be as blown away by the conversation that we have today as you were by that original conversation. Juan Mejia is truly a fellow traveler in this unbound Jewish space, and we are absolutely delighted to have him back on the podcast. So Juan Mejia, welcome back to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you on again. It's a pleasure to be here from the Great American Plains. You know, you're a really significant figure in my life in many ways, but certainly over the last few years, because right before COVID started, we were supposed to do this event together. And it was like the last event that didn't happen in my life because of COVID. And then we did it online. And so in a way, it was the first event, uh, the first online event of COVID. I mean, there really were a lot of significant things. Um, So one, I want to start out by asking you, basically, was the way that I introduced you in the intro right And the Mm -hmm. other thing that I want to tell you is that I often will tell the story of of our episode on the podcast, and then I'll say, imagine one day if there would be a Juan Mejia from China or from India, what would happen then, right? You you have just uh, enormous populations and just a few people want to be Jewish. It's more Jews than there have ever been in the history of the world. That could happen. So I'm curious how, what your take is on that as well. Look, I think they're already in the works. I know that we have people from all over the world, mostly coming to Israel, but also coming to America. I just took my kids to Camp Ramap in the Rockies, and they have staff from Colombia. They have staff from Uganda. The interest is there. The material is there. uh, And usually what you just need to do is connect the right people to the right content. Did I tell your story right? Or am I kind of, is it one of those stories where like I've remembered a version that... There is there is one detail is I chose to become a rabbi because there was not enough material. I, I was happening to start, be studying in yeshiva. I had a master's degree from Hebrew U and I was sitting on this material that I could teach. And I said, you know what? No one else is doing this work. I'm going to try to do this work. And in order to do this work, I am going to need both the training and also the title, the connections. So that is why I actually decided to go to JTS, to come to New York, become a rabbi. But I think the great shift in the story 15 years later is that the periphery and the hub are getting a little blurred. 15 years ago, uh, a young man from Colombia, if... They were a young woman from Colombia. If they wanted to learn Judaism, there were really only two places where they could go. They either come to America, or by America, we mean New York, like the East Coast, or <laughs> Israel. And in these past 15 years, you've seen initiatives developing in Europe, developing across the United States and Canada, and online that decentralize everything decentralized learning, decentralized institutional life, and particularly since 2020, that process of decentralization has been accelerated by the pandemic and by the fact that people had to meet in these alternate spaces. We opened not only avenues into the traditional centers of learning like JTS, HUC, certainly institutions, uh, Yeshiva University, Orthodox institutions. And now that we have, that everybody has had to 
do the effort to learn how to be in these spaces. If they want to work, if they want to learn, if they want to date, if they want to engage with the world, they need to be able to do this virtually. So now their menu of Judaism has expanded infinitely. Five years ago, when you would say Jewish life, you would define it as a building full of born Jews. Or depending on where you go, the definition is far less charitable, right? Like in the minds of some of the of, of the leadership of America and of Israel, it's a room full of a certain kind of Jews, whether a, a certain kind of Jews vis-a-vis observance, a certain kind of Jew vis-a-vis politics, a certain kind of Jew vis-a-vis gender or sexual orientation. Like we have this perfect idea of what a perfect Jewish community looked like And right now, that has been completely upended. And that is a wonderful opportunity, but it also creates a lot of anxiety for the people in power and like the way things used to be done. The institutions that depend and that thrive on the way things that used to be done are very worried about these new ways of doing things. Yeah. Okay. So I'm very excited about a few directions. First, I, I want to mention I was I saw a play this weekend here in Providence, Rhode Island, and there was a little talk back. It was related to some Jewish stuff. And I was one of the participants in the talk back. And a different person on the panel, they plugged their own organization and were like, Hey, we've got this we've got this building in Providence, you should come by. And they actually made a mistake. They thought that Judaism unbound, they thought that I worked at a building in town that I don't work at because I, I work at home. I, I work. I don't really work in Providence per se. I mean, I, I am in Providence as I do this work, but I am mostly working wherever people are accessing our materials. And it was this fascinating moment where, I, I mean, it was awkward because I had to be like, well, I don't work there. We don't have a podcast studio at this place that you think we have a podcast studio. But it was this funny check-in moment for me where I really was like, you know, do I work in Providence? I don't know. And Juan, you mentioned that like when people talk about America, they often are presuming like New York City, where the rabbinical schools are or whatever. I I spend a lot of time thinking about like, where do I work? For a long time, my answer to that was kind of, as I said before, like wherever people access our work. But I think that that's a little lazy. I think there are certain kinds of geographic locales that access us more that might be like our neighborhood in some kind of sense and others that don't. And one of those is actually related to where you live, where you work in a kind of geographic, physical sense, which is you're in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And for years, we've been noticing, huh, a lot of our listeners and now students in the Onyeshiva, like they're often in places that are not Jewish population centers and are not seen as like super active forms of, quote, Jewish life in the way you were just talking about. And I think that's shifting too. I think the notion of where Jewish life is because of the digital shift, people are becoming more and more used to like, oh, I go to a Zoom space and there's somebody from Oklahoma and there's somebody from Indiana and there's Mm -hmm. somebody from Australia. I'd love to hear sort of the sequel part of our first conversation with you because we were talking about mostly the work you do in Latin America with conversion. You're now in a particular kind of American context that is sort of not seen as to, as one of the main Jewish spaces. How does conversion 
relate to that. I mean, when we start to notice that Jews are a broader group than we think, when potential Jews are a broader group than we think, how does that also mean that Jewish community, quote unquote, or like Jewish population center can be a new kind of definition and can include places like Oklahoma or, or otherwise? That is so fascinating and, and that you hook it to this. We don't have a podcast studio, but, but if we were doing this work 20 years ago, let's say that you guys wanted to bring Judaism to the radio waves, right? We would need a building. We need a building and an antenna and sponsors. Like it was so hard. And now everyone's doing movies from their phones and everyone can do a radio play. And it would really what it need, what what is motivating people is true love for what they're doing. And 20 years ago, all of those resources, physical, monetary, but also cultural, were also tied to specific communities, which had a very core ethnic population that was being served by these institutions, but also being like shaping these institutions to serve just them. And if you ever cross the country in a car and stop at little Jewish communities, you will hear something that like Americans would say about Washington is like, oh, they don't care about us. The big alphabet mm-hmm. soup of the coasts does not have little Jewish communities in Oklahoma or in Iowa or in Nebraska in mind, right? Like the materials they're producing are assuming that you have a Hebrew school with 200 kids, right? And these 200 kids all have- Which basically si- nowhere does, by the way, according to recent studies. I'll throw it in the show notes. Nowhere That's does. Not and that they have the similar experience, like Hester Street and the Lower East Side and uh, Ashkenormative narrative of who American Jews are. And for the longest time, innovation in the periphery was a labor of love. And, and, and this is something that I- have discovered and gives me a lot of pride in my little community in Oklahoma City is that it's really hard to be cutting edge unless you're in the periphery. Like we have needs that the established D-sized, C-sized congregations in the East Coast, the Anshay Zabars uh, of the (laughs) Upper West Side, uh, cultural Jewish. That's an amazing reference. Can you explain that a little bit for folks who aren't familiar? Anshay Zabars is a pun. Zabars is this very large grocery store in the Upper West Side. And people say it's the largest synagogue in New York because Saturday morning, Jews are there reading the paper, drinking coffee, eating bagels, shopping. And it's a very Jewish space, but it's a very particular kind of Jew. It's like New York ethnic Upper West Side narrative that in many ways projects as like, this is what Jews are. And if you look in the media, well, that's what Jews are, right? Like Jews are not black. Jews are not Latino. Jews are not plumbers in Oklahoma. Jews are like lawyers and like neurotic uh, Upper West Side intellectuals. And what has been happening in this past 20 years is that if you don't need a podcast studio, neither do we. And because the needs of small peripheral communities are in many ways more pressing, because if we don't get leadership, we don't function. Right? Like we don't have this ethnic cushion to lie down and say, oh, well, we have like three people who I don't know are Israeli or they know enough Hebrew or they had like a really good Hebrew school education that they can come up and lead. If we don't do things, things don't happen. It is not just that smaller communities tend to be more tight-knit. 
It is not just the smaller communities tend to be far more inclusive. My Hebrew school, the Hebrew school that I run, that's my day job. I, I'm an education director at my wife's synagogue here in Oklahoma City, has Native American kids, uh, African-American kids, and they're all Jewish. And when they go to camp, when they go, when they interact with other Jews, they don't have the same hangups that we would have in New York. No one knows what Jewish looks like, and we know who the other Jews are. So we know there's Black Jews, and we know there's Asian Jews, and we know that there's converts, and we know that there's queer folk, because we need everyone. Everyone is needed for the minion. If you don't show up, then then the community simply collapses because there's no critical mass. And based on this passion of the periphery, which you're already also seeing in these communities of converts that are popping all, all over the place, in Africa, in Latin America, if they don't do it themselves, if they don't create the resources, no one is coming for them. No mm -hmm. one is creating content for them. No one is catering to these communities. They have to mix and match and, and build their own thing, which is a fantastic process of education for them. But because we now have the digital tools of production and connection, right, they're very close to starting to put out their own kind of Judaism and speaking for themselves. And just the thing in Oklahoma, what would you say if I told you that here in my little little shul in the middle of the American prairie that nobody, like everybody flies, oh, there's Jews in Oklahoma. Like in a place <laughs> where nobody thinks there's Jews, we have a group of 20 people, most of them Jews by choice, but also queer folks and uh, peripheral folks that are taking a scribal class together because we have a couple here in Oklahoma City who is making their own parchment. They're making scribal, they're making tefillin out of roadkill because they're vegans. They want, they want cruelty-free sancta. And they said, no one is going to do it for us. We have the deer, right? Like the deer don't live in New York. The deer are out here. And, <laughs> and people run them with their Ford F-150s, not in Westchester County. Well, maybe, maybe in Westchester, but we do it here. Like we have roadkill and we have, and we have deer and like, let's do this. This person, these people that establish this are laymen. They went online and they did the learning and they asked their rabbis and I helped and my wife helped. And we built this collective abur scheme. Why? Because we don't want to pay $40 for a, for a mezuzah that comes from God knows where. No, if we're going to make an ugly mezuzah, we can make ugly mezuzahs ourselves. And feel good. <laughs> like, and, 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 and by this, we will have empowered an entire congregation, right? Many people who did not grow up Jewish and like, you know what? Yeah, writing a mezuzah is hard. But it's something that can't be taught. The tools that the internet has given us, the tools of connection and the tools of the ability to produce text or video or content has this, this revolution in education in which we really can access all of Judaism from wherever. It is not, oh, I have to go to the experts that live in this gilded tower in the Upper West Side and, and get the secrets of how things are done. The secrets are out. When the printing press came out, it was the same thing. Rabbis were complaining, I now people are going to make their own decisions. And this is terrible. The printing press is a horrible thing because it's putting knowledge in the hands of the people. Every time knowledge falls on the hands of the people, there is a gnashing of teeth and shredding of, of garments among the elites, <laughs> but there is also A, rejoicing in the periphery, and B, the periphery really gets flooded 
because I, I said it once back and I'll say it again. Our product is really good. We have a really good reputation. Even though there's only like 14 million of us, like we're in all the books. Judaism is so respected, like, oh, like this the mother religion. Right now, people are looking for authenticity and they're looking for ways. And and our name is up there and people are getting are are coming to the content. I, I'm fresh off of a of a conference that the Institute of Southern Jewish Life hosted. And I also lived in Mississippi for two years and I wandered around the South to places similar to Oklahoma City and often even smaller communities. And what you're describing, the ethos you're describing, like the only synagogue I've ever been a part of that had a weekly Talmud study was in Jackson, Mississippi. They had a weekly Talmud study. It was very fun. I, it, it was not a hundred people, but it was a few folks who, like you said, they were just like, I don't know anything. I don't know much about Talmud, but like I could, I could put in the time to go on a Wednesday or whatever and like dive into this text with some other folks in English. And every week for years, this continued. And I do find that almost everywhere you go in rural Jewish spaces, there's something that they're doing that is surprising that their people have just stepped up to do for exactly the reason you're describing. There's this bottom-up notion that is a result of not having a top. You can't be top-down when there is no top. If you don't have a rabbi or if you maybe have one rabbi who is totally overwhelmed with a million things, the result is that people step up and create. And so you get a Talmud study, you get a film festival. I mean, there was a film festival every year, in ja a Jewish film festival in Jackson, Mississippi. There was a Talmud study. There were all sorts of things that many bigger Jewish communities don't always do. And I also want to reflect on how in Jackson, Mississippi and in Oklahoma and in many other rural areas, religion is just a bigger, more central part of the fabric of what is happening in it, it, these are spaces where it's hard to not have any kind of religious home base. Like small talk conversation is which church do you go to? And like you can say the Jewish church, that's a valid answer in many of these places. Bless your heart. Um, yeah, bless your heart. Exactly. But saying nothing is so it's not like people aren't going to yell at you because it's the South and people tend not to yell, but it might be like, oh, what's the what's the deal here? And so you end up, even with folks who are really dissatisfied with their religion of origin, even with people who like really are viscerally harmed by often Christianity in these spaces, but whatever their religious home base, they are often looking to find spaces that still are religious, but in ways that don't restrict their identities. And so they end up in Jewish spaces. And so you end up in a Jackson, Mississippi, or in many other spots, having communities that not only have converts, but are often like, they're the ones heading the committees and leading the services. To, I mean, this absolutely. And presidents of the shul. And eventually, if if we make rabbinical school available for for the youth, uh, or, or even like the, the, the elders of, of these communities, uh, if we have leadership available for them, they can do their own leadership. Yeah. And, and just to close out the question, basically, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And also just like how this relates to the ways in which in rural spaces, it often can't be about the ethnic stuff that you're describing because there's not a critical mass of those people. And it leads to a greater celebration of sides that we might call, you know, quote unquote religious. Um, it, it leads to a real excitement and energy around the calendar of holidays, the texts, all of those pieces. One of the beautiful things about the frontier, 
and I think this was celebrated in its time when it was happening, was the fact that even though New York and the big cities were touted as like, oh, this is the melting pot. No, Jews were like the Jews from Pinsk, as long as they could handle it, will go to the Pinsker Shul. Mm-hmm. Like, we'll, we'll keep going like, and the Germans had their German little uh, churches, right? And everybody tried to preserve the old country. But when that would broke down is when you were the, the Jew arriving with your suitcase and your samovar to Okarchi, Oklahoma. And you knew that it was you, maybe another dude. And, oh, he's Sephardic, or, oh, God, he's Galicianer. Like, he's from a different part of Poland. Or they don't even speak Yiddish because they've been in America here for a while. And when religion is the common language, many people who are, oh, I'm Methodist. Oh, I am Lutheran. And they had to all go to the same church because there's not enough Lutherans to make a Lutheran church. So you had all of these prairie denominations, the disciples that were kind of ecumenical. And Judaism out here is ecumenical because we need everyone. And also, because it's ecumenical, it's diverse. And at the same time, because people are steeped in usually Christianity, like there's such a Christian narrative going on, if people want to exercise their Judaism, whether ancestrally received or exploring as a, like, they have to do it in, in a very traditional way. There are no secular Jewish spaces in Oklahoma. There's just synagogues and cemeteries. And okay, so there's a Hillel. You, you do social things, but there is still that notion of we need access to these texts. And what I tell my students in, in Hebrew school, it's not just that you need access to this to these texts because they're yours, because of the Jewish tradition, is because people around you are reading these te- these same texts in a very different way. And if you want to keep what makes you unique, right? If you want to be a Jew, then in many ways your identity will be defined in opposite, well, not in opposition, but certainly in distinction to what you have, right? So there is no comfortable ethnic cushion for small communities. And that is what brings us to the second problem of these communities. And I don't think it's so much a problem for Oklahoma yet, but certainly it is an issue for my communities in Latin America or communities in Africa that are made exclusively of converts, is that if it is true Absolutely true. And it's a new reality, and we cannot put the genie back in the box. The knowledge, the Torah now lives outside of Jewish institutions. We have safaria, we have podcasts, we have every year we come closer to, yeah, Google Translate is really getting better every year. And within five years, I'm going to be able to have an AI run safaria and give me the entire Talmud in Spanish. Pretty decently. I like, I'm not going to say it's going to be like, you're still going to need a rabbi to go, yeah, here's where the algorithm messed up, but you're going to have potentially Torah in every single language within a decade, less than a decade. I, if, if not, if, if it's not already available, the big challenge is that because in the past 100 years, what has been the great Jewish project in the diaspora and in Israel? It's to succeed. We are now in modernity, and what Jews need to do is Jews need to succeed, because success keeps us sane. 
that has been like the like the mantra in the diaspora. We we need to show them that like we are smart, that we're American, that we're loyal, that we are an integral part of it, and we have succeeded incredibly. Like by any standards, like our buildings are huge and our endowments are incredible, and we have so many senators and we have so many congressmen. Great. You take the Israeli experiment, and we now have guns and land and and all of the things that go with that. And these two narratives, when you enter them, and he's like, who did this? We talk about we the people. Who is we the people? Who built this? Who built this and for who was this built? And usually the answer that people will come in New York is, it's for us. We the people. We the people that is Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi Western Jews, or in Israel, like people with certifiable ethnic connections to the Jewish people. And now you have all of these communities that are really mushrooming around the world that say, I want to be part of this nation. I want to be part of this people. I now might have the blood quanta that I need. And it's sadly in some areas, we speak about blood quanta. Mm -hmm. The law of return has a blood quanta. In Germany, in Germany, if I am a German and I want to convert, and I go to the Gemeinde, which is the organized uh, German represent. Like the Gemeinde in Germany will not convert you unless you have a Jewish grandparent. So when I say that there is an ethnic bottleneck, there is a very clear concern that the Jewish community has built a modicum of wealth, privilege, influence, in the case of Israel, statehood. And now that we have all of these communities coming around saying, hey, we're Jews too, that is where the ethnic bottleneck bottlenecking begins. Like, well, you're not Jewish because you were converted by a conservative rabbi. Like, there you have like religious discrimination. We're seeing it currently in Israel where certain of the right-wing parties, for example, want to exclude third-generation Israelis who are not halakhically Jewish from the law of return. I, I don't want to be the chicken little and saying that the sky is falling. But if already people in Israel are considering excluding the grandchildren of Jews from the law of return, think how how well converts without a justifiable Jewish quanta will fare in Quote that unquote. system. You're doing air quotes in our Zoom, but just for our listeners. Well, I, I'm, yes. That is a big issue, and it's an issue that worries me a lot, and is one of the reasons why I have become very careful in my outreach, is because if this rift is not bridged, and I know that Jews love saying this, but we are heading towards like different peoplehoods. And I'm concerned because I'm a Jew, and I love the Jewish people wherever they are. I also love my communities, and I see like their authenticity and Yes, they are Jews, and they're they're in Mexico, they're in Colombia, they're in Uganda, they're all over the world. For them not to be recognized, for them not to be invited at the table, for them not to be even mem- be able to be members of Jewish organizations, it's a negative effect on them. It has negative effects on their children. And what we're being told right now is, listen, these resources are for people with the right kind of pedigree. Yeah, well, that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of thing where I, I've said in dif- different ways. Implicitly, there's there's a mindset that isn't generally explicitly stated in the Jewish institutional world that says what we mean by Jewish continuity 
is to make sure that the people who were born Jewish in the way that we think of that as being, you know, whether it's explicitly or implicitly a, a certain stereotype or a certain group, or even maybe a little bit broader than that. But basically, we're talking about a certain set of people who, you know, were Jewish 10 years ago, and we want to make sure that they keep being Jewish moving forward. So in other words, it's about trying to stop people from falling out of Judaism, as opposed to imagining that a path to continuity is a lot of people falling into Judaism. Now, why is that exactly? I, I think we can discuss and debate it. And I, I want to come back around to that. But before we do, I'm interested in just playing out the opportunity here before we really start talking about the problems, mm -hmm. right? That I think that people are still thinking about some of this stuff as if we're talking about a few people on the periphery, like, oh, maybe even if it would be a big amount, it would be like five or 10% of the Jewish people would be these people that are converting out in the periphery or in the global South or in small towns or whatever. And and this is where I kind of think about it as people just are, are often thinking very short term and they can't really imagine what it would look like if this innovation was not just uh, peripheral innovation saying, we're going to have a few more people coming to synagogue. You may not recognize them and we should be more welcoming, but it's just five or 10 people on any given Shabbat. As opposed to, we're talking about the possibility that the numbers of people who will be described this way, the way that you're talking about, will dwarf the number of Jews that there currently are. So you talked about there being 14 million. Imagine a world where there were 100 million Jews and 86 million of them are they're all people who are converting and their descendants. And and so I'm I'm wondering if you could play out a little bit. Well, first of all, like I, I think that's how you see it, but I'm curious how you would you know, if you would see it differently from from how I just described it. But also last time you said something really intriguing, which was that when you were officiating conversions of people from Latin America, often you're a conservative rabbi, often they wanted to be Orthodox. And I think about the global South in general, right? We know that Catholicism, for example, has been really successful in the global South, whereas in Europe, for example, it's struggling. And so you wonder that there's a set of needs and a set of interests in the global South, just as one example, that are different from what we see in the global North. And I wonder if that's sort of inevitably schismatic, if we're really going to look at, and not in a bad way necessarily, but like that we're going to look at a number of different versions of Judaism. And I'm curious whether, if that's the case, how you describe those different versions of Judaism that we might see in the global South, that we might see in the small town communities or any other groups, maybe among queer and trans folk. You know, mm -hmm. what are the different Judaisms that may emerge out of a enormous number of people converting and then, as you described, starting to put out their own materials pretty quickly? Right now, one of the things that people are craving is that sense of, of a little village, right? We tended to be stay in neighborhoods where we had cousins and family and friends. Like that is the beauty of the ethnic neighborhood is a place where everyone knows your name. And eventually you have like those 20, 30, 40 people that you can rely on, like to take care of your kids, to give you a cup of sugar. And modernity killed that. I don't know my neighbors. I'm trying. I'm trying to be a better neighbor, but like I don't share anything with them. And I'm in Oklahoma, so I'm Jewish, and they're definitely not Jewish. So there's 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 a lot of of barriers, but people still want that 
that wonderful third space where where their where their spiritual needs are met, their physical needs are met. And also, and this is something that I'm starting to see also in the youth, uh, where they can get help. And, and this was all what the vintage synagogue did. My synagogue today in Oklahoma, today is the 14th of Tammuz when we're, I don't know when this comes out in the real world, but you're not in Providence and I'm not in Oklahoma, so we are also <laughs> beyond time. That's right. Uh, today is the 119th birthday of my shul, the 14th of Tammuz. And these guys created a place so they could pray, but also so they could get a little bit of money to help like the landsmen that would arrive. So now it's like the the the, the Gen Z who cannot make the rent. Right. Or the single mother who needs, hey, Rabbi, can I drop my kid with you while I do this thing that I need to do? That's what communities did for each other. And we have been living in this desert of the American nuclear family, uprooted usually. Right. We moved to Chicago and like it's me, my dad, my sister. And that is what we provide. And that that is a that is a need that is human. And I think don't think it's going to disappear, even with all of the other needs that are being fulfilled online and people are getting their Torah and they're getting their prayer from online. But I think eventually they will need someone close by IRL that will assist them and create community. And I think Judaism has a fantastic model for that. People who are Oklahomans are deeply religious, but because they're queer, because they're left-wing, but whatever thing, they don't jive with the current state of Christianity. And they say, well, Judaism is where Christianity comes from. I want to see what's in there. And they find a home. Likewise, you have the people who want to be Orthodox because they're looking for authenticity. And here it's, it's a huge paradox because if the Orthodox world was able to get past this gag reflex on ethnicity and we know that the the orthodox world is the most ethnic of the jewish of the judaisms that is like they're really set not only in the way we do things but like you're from our community like i'm a chassid you're a misnaget not only am i like i'm a belser chassid and you're a different kind of chassid and i know that those things are not as meaningful as they used to be but if they could give up their some of their hang-ups on ethnicity they would absolutely overwhelm the rest of the Jewish people. I wouldn't say missionary. I think missionary is a dirty word, like in the, in the Jewish world, but it became uh, assertive. That is uh, a beautiful term coined by Rabbi Alexander Schindler, who was the head of the reform movement uh, uh, in the 80s, I think. And he was one of the guys saying, like, we need to go out. We need to go and preach to the unchurched, right? There's so many unchurched Americans. There is spiritual malaise. We have the answer. It's called Judaism, and we should be putting our message out. When that American non-Jew walks in looking for meaning, you say, welcome, right? He called it assertive Judaism. It's not proselytizing because we don't knock doors. We don't have to knock at doors. It's annoying, right? So we don't knock doors because it doesn't work and it's it doesn't vibe with us. But once we have our message outside, and people fall in love, what are you going to tell them? Like, no? Or, ooh, let's do a cheek swab just to find if you're... Or, like, people are doing this preemptively, right? Like, oh, I did a cheek swab. I have 12% Jewish. Oh, my God, like, this is... Uh, and and they and they go down this ethnic rabbit hole, but it's not necessary. It's, it's not sine qua non, which a lot of the Jewish institutions think it is. Yeah, but this is why I was so fascinated by what you said at the beginning of our conversation about 
the internet and about, you know, our podcast studios being on the edge. Like you, you described something future looking that it was so fascinating to me, which is that you're saying very soon these groups that are new to Judaism, let's say, are going to be able to produce their own content and put it out into the world in a way that is that you wouldn't have wouldn't have been possible for for any part of Jewish history until now. So then the question is we, we can say, hey, Orthodox, you should be more more open and more assertive. You know, hey, reform, you should be uh, open. I think they are often, but if a lot of people would be flooding into the reform synagogues, like I think that there would be a start to say, wait, wait a second, is this is this kind of overwhelming what we understand to be reform Judaism? This is there would be sort of a sense of danger. But maybe none of that will happen. In other words, maybe the people who are converting, and you understand why, their first attempt would be to try to join the local synagogues and the local institutions. If they are finding resistance there, then I think we would have imagined in the past that they would have been disappointed and gone off and gone somewhere else. But now you're saying that there's a possibility that, especially as those numbers grow, that people will find each other and basically start their own synagogues or start their own whatever, or start, you know, find an online, put out their own stuff and start building digital communities. And that, I think, is the, the interesting possibility. So then you say to the Orthodox, for example, or, or the Reformed synagogue, say, you are about to be irrelevant because these people are going to be Jewish. And they are going to build incredible Jewish communities, but not with you. That is an interesting next step to me. So I've been doing uh, 929, which is uh, an Israeli initiative, uh, but also has an English uh, website, uh, which is you learn one parak of the Hebrew Bible, one one chapter of the Hebrew Bible a day. Uh, and there is discussion and podcasts, and you have like rabbis, but also archaeologists and linguists all putting in. And we're reading the book of Isaiah. And this is something that I, I knew, but just going back to these words, imagine how crazy it is that you have a guy like Micah or Isaiah, and they're sitting 27 year, centuries from us. What they're seeing is the world is being taken over by Assyria. And the Syria, like the way they describe Assyria is like a Sauron. It's like the armies of mortar. These guys are unstoppable. They're not human. And there is Yom Hashem. Here comes the day of the Lord. There's a big crisis incoming. But what is the outcome that all of the prophets of Israel see? Is that once Yom Hashem happens, once this big crisis hits us, the values are going to be so upturned the Aritzim, the, the the nobles of Jerusalem, who are sitting there in their finery, and uh, and Isaiah doesn't really like wine or timbrels. He he sounds like a little bit of a of a party pooper. But because these guys are <laughs> drinking while the poor people, while the periphery is suffering into the incoming storm of Assyria, and instead of saying what what is their end game? Their end game is that once the crisis is over, everybody, all of the nations will come to, to 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 Mount Zion and say wow we we never thought this crisis was going to happen but you guys have like the code to make it through it teach us teach us how to survive in a world in which things keep collapsing all the time there is a unanimous voice in our tradition that what we have is so good and so true that eventually even the nations who persecuted us, even the nations who 
where our enemies, Egypt and Assyria, will become holy, will become holy in a Jewish way, will become holy. So I find this message very, very powerful, not only because it's happening now, because it happened before. Right, like when you had the big upturning of the world with Alexander the Great, people flocked to Judaism, finding meaning. Like, what does it mean? I don't live, I don't live in the world of the of the Iron Age anymore. Right, and when the printing press came out, like, oh my world, the world, the world's gonna end. And now that we're in the in, in the other great upheaval, and we have the tools, what we're seeing is again this in influx, which is unlike anything we've seen before, and because of that. Yes, it's there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of fear, and I've been said this explicitly. But if we let them all in, there'll be more of them than there'll be of us. Which is mm-hmm. yes, what we what the Jewish tradition yeah. asks you when considering conversion is something short of miraculous. Is that right? In, in ancient Greece, you could not become a Greek. You're a barbarian. Hey, you you can learn to speak Greek. You can be respected, but you're never going to be Greek. Heck, Aristotle lived in Athens and his entire life as a as a, a, a metake, metoikos. He was a he was a foreigner. Like you're not from the city, dude. You're Greek, but you're not good enough. Like that is how a Roman citizen, right? Oh, you have to be Roman on both sides. And the Jewish people are the first people who said, you know what? She's a Moabite, but she's fine. She <laughs> she's good. Like we were the first That's to say. That's a reference for folks out there. Yeah. Uh, not only people come and live with us, but like the the this is all porous. Yeah, I want to be direct and straightforward, and I will say some things. And Juan, if you disagree or if you would frame it differently or more moderately than me, that is totally great, and you should say so. Go um, for the jugular. We have a word in English for the set of fears and anxieties around a a newcomer group of people coming in and changing a society. That word is nativism. And we typically associate it with the right wing of politics. And historically, we associate it with segregationism. We associate it with, uh, I mean, today with Trumpism. We, we, like, a lot of Jews try to be not that. Um, and, and I don't want to, I mean, this. there's lots of dynamics and you were talking about Orthodox versus non-Orthodox. Like, I'm mostly speaking now to folks who are not Orthodox and probably as a result of that invested in not being part of right-wing political communities often. Um, it is sociologically and anthropologically fascinating to me that a, it's also terrible, but I think it's fascinating to me that a set of people who hold a negative set of worries about nativism, like people who would not want to be opposed to immigration from the global south to the U.S. or from Muslim countries, people who are out there protesting to say banning people from immigrating based on the places they're from is bad. It is like anthropologically fascinating to me that many of those people will go and look at Jewish community and say that they are nervous about if a bunch of new people who are not Jews become Jews. It, and I'm saying fascinating with like a hint of not just fascinating. It, I think it's racist. It's tragic. It's 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 yes. And I think that we need to look inward about it because um, I'm using I'm using nativism consciously because it's a little softer than like racism. I do think that the way that this plays out is usually pretty racist, and I think people are not always conscious of of how like historically 
the move of saying, no, 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 I'm not opposed to a specific group of people. I'm opposed to a way of life, quote unquote, that my society has, a Southern way of life, an American way of life. I I am interested in that staying the same. And so I am concerned about people who come from other ways of life coming in and changing that. That is used euphemistically to be racist. It is used euphemistically to outsider, to marginalize groups of people that are generally black and brown, or in many cases, historically, we can look at the calendar of American history and say 1924 was a time when people in Congress said, there's been a whole bunch of these people from, uh, you know, Eastern Europe. We're just going to talk about it as a geographic area. We're not going to say Jewish. And so they made policies such that people could not immigrate from certain areas because they were seen as bringing certain ways of life that conflicted with American ways of life. And as a result, a bunch of people who might have left areas of Eastern and Central Europe didn't. And we know what happened in the 30s and 40s. I see that choice in 1924 as as something that was complicit in the deaths of Jewish people. Like I see this is not a joke. This is not like just an interesting phenomenon. And once again, still what Dan said is right. I think like there's reform communities full of people that identify as liberals and progressives who if a bunch of folks like converted tomorrow, even as they say, oh, we want to grow our community. We want our, like we're worried about our membership. If that membership came from a bunch of folks who don't trace themselves genealogically to Jewish parentage, I think they'd be concerned. And I want to just visibilize that like this isn't just, oh, an interesting back and forth about do we want to, like, what are the give and takes of bringing in new people? And I think we need to tie it to the ways in which this historically has done deep harm to Jews and to folks who are not just Jews, who are marginalized groups. So, like, I guess I would love to hear from you more about, like, the opposition people feel to, like, a bunch of newcomers coming in. I, I do get that there's there's a way to have a not racist approach to this where, like, yeah, there are certain rituals or or ideas that you hold sacred and maybe people like don't know about those rituals and you're worried about losing them. But when we have a history that we have, I think it's important for us to tie it to the ways that it's not just been benign. So can you talk to us a little bit? Like I even think about, you said, if there could be more of them than there are of us, that's the language of demographic threat, quote unquote, that comes up in Israel all the time. There are literal differences in rights allocated to Palestinians and Israelis on that basis, because if enough Palestinians had enough rights, then the way of life is threatened. And in America, we've seen how, like it's not just an Israel thing. It's It keeps on coming up. So how might we think about this in ways that tie to some pretty important threads of, of our world's and our country's history? We are not sowing in, in untilled land. Uh, there is a, a thing that we need to acknowledge. There is an aspect of our tradition which is born out of trauma and that needs to be held compassionately and lovingly. And that is through the long, difficult history of the Jewish people, we have grown this notion of Jewish exceptionalism, which, by the way, is not supported by the scriptures. Uh, Oh, the chosen people, not like, you go read, chosen for what? And then, because of the constant tragedy, right, like this, this us versus them, and a yid bleib the yid, and a goy bleib the goy, uh, which is like a a, uh, a a yiddish term that was said 
uh, a lot like 60 years, 70 years ago, when particularly women started to convert to marry Jews, like, oh, Jews are Jews and goys are goys. Like you can't, you can't really convert. You can't really, you can't really switch. The entire world was saying, well, the Jew is fundamentally other. And Jews were saying, yes, we are fundamentally other, right? We were owning our trauma. We're owning our abuse by saying, yes, we are, we are unique. And, uh, and you're not us and you and we are not you. A hundred years ago, 1924, I, th- I think that's a good milestone, right? If you were to ask like Jews who at that point were being rejected from the coast of this country, like, is it great to be a Jew? Is it a great, is it a great nachas to be a Jew? Is it a great privilege to be a Jew? And they would say no. And then usually we'd say like, whoever, whoever is crazy enough to want to be with us can be with us. What has happened in those hundred years? We have amassed an incredible amount of privilege, both in America, in Israel, and in Europe. Yeah, whatever. There's Jewish communities in Rhodesia and in Colombia and in Peru, but Jews, the majority of the world's Jews are now very, very ensconced in the West. Europe, North America, Israel. Very clear axis that runs a lot of money, a lot of influence, and a lot of power. And that is where nativism comes in. Because nativism is, you're not afraid, like, yeah, some people are racist, some people don't want to mix and miscegenate, whatever. But what you're what you're really anxious about is why should they benefit from what we built for our children? That is the core mm. of nativism. We have all of this alphabet soup of Jewish J, F, W, and buildings and yeshivas and endowments in a country that any Jew quote unquote, can flee when they're in trouble. And one of the most powerful armies in the world defend us, two of the most powerful army in the world defending us. So do we really want to share this with folks in Colombia, folks in Venezuela who might become a liability? And and at that crux, it really, and, and here is where I, I, I switch my, my, my kippah, like from activist to rabbi, is... This is exactly the challenge of the Torah. When you see it through the Torah, like in, in Ha'azinu or later in the prophets, this is the process. We, we, we enter the fray of history as slaves. We enter the fray of history as disenfranchised and barren, and then we are redeemed, and we gain great joy, and we enter the land. And then what happens? We start thinking, oh, we did this. We're so good. We're so cool. We're so holy. We're so exceptional. We have built this wonderful thing because we're so smart. Jews are smart. Jews are blessed, right? That's when the the wheel starts to turn. Yes, we have worked really hard, but we haven't worked in a vacuum, right? We've worked in like we're, we 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 are working in, in in a collective as Americans and the Israelis and other people are are putting their 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 work, their labor, like, we can't, we did this. Therefore, it belongs just to us. This point in which you have Jews kind of forgetting that there were slaves in Egypt and saying, like, we don't want to share the wisdom. This is the Jewish people betraying its fundamental mission. I don't think we should become a missionary people, but we are definitely a people without a mission currently. What is our mission? What is our mission? Our mission is to to thrive or, like, to be powerful, we're powerful. To have a country, we have a country. To have sovereignty, we have sovereignty. We have all these things. What is it that you do with those things? 
what is it that you do with those blessings that you have acquired if not share them right that is and 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 this is a very dangerous like i say this with a rabbi and i i don't want to take the mantle of the prophet right but we see things change on a dime a little virus in wuhan like and then the entire world is upside down the privilege that we have acquired as a jewish community is finicky and what we really do need in this moment is friends and like for a message to become not just respected but like if our message can transform american society like that is the mission and for the mission we can't achieve it just with our 14 million incredibly smart curly yidden right like no we need more people it is not about the money anymore and it's not about the land mass it is about who can sway the most minds it's about who can get their values to become useful for the new millennium if we are not all burned to a crisp in a hundred years and in a world with whatever 50 billion human beings would 14 million jews still make a difference i want to ask you we're talking about profits here and maybe as a we're nearing the end of our time uh just being able to to talk about germ we've talked a lot about isaiah sort of isaiah's perspective of saying you know Jacques, you know, these these uh, these rich, uh, drunk people living high, you know, should be more should be. And in this case, should be more open and maybe even for the you're talking now about for their own self-interest. Agreed with all of that. But I also want to think a little bit about Jeremiah, <laughs> who sometimes was a complainer, which is why they came up with the word Jeremiah. Right. But also sometimes he was a realist. And I feel that Jeremiah, after the exile, after the destruction of the southern kingdom, Jeremiah wrote a letter saying to the exiles in Babylon saying, build houses there. In other words, you're not, you're, the, the ideal situation is not going to happen. And so I feel like a lot of our listeners are the kinds of people that we're talking about. The people who have found Judaism, have found that it speaks to them, but not in the way that it has traditionally spoken to the organized institutional affiliators. And a lot of times what I'm trying to tease out in this podcast is saying to them, yeah, those folks should let you into those spaces. The gatekeeping should end. But if the gatekeeping doesn't end, what's next? And again, I want to I wanna talk with you about the possibilities because I find it so fascinating of what might happen if the gates don't open to those institutions, what does the other route look like? If these peripheral communities manage to harness the power of connection to create their own leadership and to put out their own Torah, they will be able to survive long enough to be needed by the greater Jewish people. When I go back to Latin America and I get into these frustrating conversations of when there's going to be more of them than us, says, look, necessity eventually will look like us. You're in a demographic war that is lost. You will need people like me to take care of your institutions and to make sure that your values are held by someone, even if it's not your grandchildren. Your grandchildren might be in Miami. They might be in Israel. Like, or you might not have grandchildren. Like, but eventually they're going to like the communities are going to realize it is better to have houses 
in every diaspora. It is good to have friends in every river and in every port. And you never know where the like you never know where salvation is going to come. I I just visited New York. One of my favorite places in New York is Battery Park because that was the original dock. And I I go back to that September in 1654 when 23 mostly women and children come of a boat speaking Portuguese, going like they're the first Jews in America. And if you were like, suppose, like if I ran to them and said, like, ah, oh, brethren, you're founding the wonder, most wonderful, powerful diaspora in the world, they would look to you like, we're nothing. We're refugees. We're like, what is this place? New Amsterdam? This, this is a dump. This is like <laughs> a forest in the end of, edge of the wilderness. So what I tell my communities is live authentically, hold on to these truths. These are truths that the Jewish people has have held. You never know. Right at what point it is your job to play Esther in the story? Like you never know at what point your skills are going to be the skills that the Jewish people, the world, the universe, God needs you to use. We don't know what the future is going to need, so we need everyone. Well, that's an amazing note to close on. And as a last little reminder, given that the first Jews on American soil were coming from Brazil and speaking Portuguese, I think that's a good reminder that those of us who are from Europe, maybe maybe we could do, maybe we could remember sometimes that we were actually latecomers to this context compared to those who came first. And that's really a powerful thing, given this conversation. Thank you so much, Juan Mejia, for joining us again. This has been a fantastic uh, sequel conversation to your first appearance. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to close out this episode in the same way we always do by encouraging you, be in touch with us. Send us a note. Be in touch. It's the best. And uh, we love getting to know our listeners better. Also, stay tuned. There's some big Judaism Unbound slash Anyashiva news coming your way in the next few days. This episode is being released on Friday, July 14th, 2023. That news will be coming your way in the very near future. So. I'm not going to spoil it, but stay tuned for some really amazing news about our organization's future. And now, as a reminder, we encourage you to listen in to our future episodes in this conversion unit. We've had an amazing start with Katie Kastner Frenchman and Juan Mejia. We've got a bunch more awesome episodes coming your way in the next bunch of weeks, so definitely listen in. We also hope that you will, as I mentioned, be in touch with us because it is the best. And here are all the ways you can do so. First, there's our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram feeds. All of those are at Judaism Unbound for our handles. Second, there's our website, JudaismUnbound.com, where you can check out the show notes for this episode, learn more about the Anyashiva, our digital center for Jewish learning and unlearning. And there are our email inboxes, Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com to be in touch. We love, love, love receiving notes from our listeners with questions, visions, thoughts, ideas about the Jewish future. All of it is great. The last thing that I'll say is that support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.